Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 32nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is inspiring sticky change. With me is Alan Van Oosten, who, along with Richard Boisatis, Muffled Vet, and Melvin Smith, is the author of Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion for Lifelong Learning and Growth. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Ellen is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior and the Faculty Director of Executive Education at the Weatherhead School of Management, Case Western Reserve University. She is also the Director of the Coaching Research Lab. Her research interests include coaching, leadership development, emotional intelligence, and women's leadership in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, often known as STEM. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. It's a delight to be here with you today. Oh, I think we'll have a wonderful conversation. Uh, Change is an all-important and very emotional topic. So let's help the readers out and just give them a quick overview of what your book is about. Absolutely. Uh, Well, innate in most of us as humans is a deep desire to really help others. Yet the way we go about it, Dan, usually is all wrong. And so usually we get trapped into thinking we need to be directive as well as pointing out what needs to get fixed. So we have kind of a problem-solving fix-it approach to the way that we try to help others. Um, And we know that doesn't work. We actually know that from our experience, all of us. But we add to that what we've learned over the last uh, 30 plus years around um, a number of studies on what really creates and sustains a desired change, what motivates it, you know, what helps us to learn and grow and develop, and then what helps us sustain that. So that's the the essence of the book. We've been able to put that together and kind of curate our own uh, research findings with those of uh, a lot of our doctoral students and colleagues who are now um, all over the world. And we've been able to put that together um, in addition to uh, ex- or with exercises that will help the reader know how to go about um, applying some of those concepts. So uh, we're, we're excited to be able to offer it. Okay. And I want to build on that last answer because, uh, you know, I, I think we're talking here about something that is about careers, but it's also about the spiritual, the emotional life of the person. So to me, I'm going to contrast this with yo-yo dieting, which is very much the physical, but certainly has emotional elements to it. In this book, you say the key is that the effort isn't sustainable. So what makes it sustainable or not sustainable? How do people manage to make the change, which is hard enough, and keep the change going? What have you found? Yeah, so what we found, Dan, is that um, there's a couple fundamental truths that we need to keep in mind. And that is that um, 
how people learn, grow, and change, how we motivate ourselves to do that, and then how we're able to have lasting change, lasting development. There's a couple of, of factors that we can draw upon from adult learning theory. One is that adults change when they want to or when they need to. So in other words, we can, like you said, um, embark on wanting to lose weight. And we will make a lot more progress on that if we have a vision that has um, deep meaning for us and how all that effort is going to really help us. You know, maybe it's, it's helping us to live out our value of vitality and well-being, or maybe it's a goal that has um, salience for us. We want to make sure that we are, you know, down 30 pounds before that uh, 30th year class reunion or before a big family event or, or something like that. Um, mandated change doesn't stick. So when we're told what to do, it's not that we won't comply. We comply for all sorts of reasons, especially in our professional lives. Maybe we have to to keep our job. Maybe we want to because we don't want to fail. You know, we want to do good work, right? Um, maybe it's because of who's requiring us, uh, somebody in authority, for instance, and so on. So there's all sorts of important and really good reasons why we, we will do what we have to do. But often it doesn't stick. We have to be able to inspire it. And that's true within ourselves. So it's true to inspire our own kind of intrinsic motivation, our own desire. And it's absolutely true when we're working with others in our roles as a helper. So whether that is as a manager, as a leader, as a coach, but also as a healthcare worker, as a parent, as an educator, maybe a minister. I mean, so in so many of our personal and professional roles that we are in in our life, these fundamental truths um, are really applicable. Okay. And we are talking about change and you obviously do executive coaching and so forth. What kind of challenges are you called on most often? Is there certain patterns to what kind of challenges people are trying to overcome or move through? And also I'm curious, are there gender differences in what those requests might yeah, be? Yeah. Well, the change that um, often we get to work with individuals around uh, tends to be preparing them for leadership roles. And so the um, Individuals and organizations that uh, myself and my colleagues tend to uh, work with the most are managers and leaders and organizations and the organizations themselves who are interested to um, develop talent, retain talent in the organization, and prepare people to be the best leaders that they can be. So there's always a war for talent. And that's true now, you know, um, more than ever. Uh, but it's also true, you know, when um, times are not so dire and we're not uh, managing and leading through a crisis. So you always want the best people on your team and you want to be able to keep them and developing them is one big way to do that. So the context around change often is preparing somebody to take on more of a leadership role or a different role, maybe an expanded role. Um, as well as um, to be able to um, just help individuals expand their leadership toolkit. So maybe the ways that they have been 
trained or coached in the past are just not enough uh, to help them be effective and successful given the current environment. And so um, in in that way, uh, we're usually called upon to work with both individuals and then we work with cohorts and um, help them understand themselves. So we do a lot of work around self-awareness, self-awareness around mindset, self-awareness around strengths and struggles, um, self-awareness around dreams, around values, around one's personal vision. Um, And when we do that as a cohort uh, with a group of say 30 or 40 leaders in an organization, we connect that then with the vision of the organization. You know, where's the organization going and what do they really need the leaders of the organization to do and to be? And so that's usually the frame. Okay, so we're, okay. And so we're talking about emotional and social skills as opposed to teaching them how to read a, read a spreadsheet better or something like that. It's, it's both and. Actually, so in some cases, you know, most of our work really is in what you said, like more of what we would call the emotional and social intelligence development, but also in a concept that we refer to as resonant leadership. So it's the idea of how can an individual be more tuned in, more dialed in, more resonant, so to speak, with uh, those around him or her. Uh, so, so that's a, a one of the aspects. But when we uh, design leadership programs for cohorts of managers, uh, many organizations are asking and needing uh, for those individuals to also understand how to uh, be more effective in managing and leading the business as well. And so, we'll we'll include kind of like a curriculum that could be thought of as a mini MBA. You know, where somebody um, might get exposed to strategy um, as well as uh, financial acumen, you know, as well as uh, maybe marketing. And then the um, leadership piece of that is a thread that we weave throughout the entire experience. So instead of separating leadership and leadership development from the business, we actually put those things together and contextualize it in that organization's business. Okay, and no real gender differences in terms of the challenges you face or the advice that you you, you find over time you've uh, given? There's actually a, a lot of emerging data that is coming out about the some of the classic differences between men and women. Um, one of those um, areas that we uh, do come up um, against quite a bit is in the realm of um, women in particular and how they uh, process their 360-degree feedback. So when we use 360-degree feedback in our programs, individuals have an opportunity to uh, collect the perspectives, right, of many others around them, kind of that notion of 360 degrees around um, someone. So their managers, their peers, their direct reports, their clients, their customers, and, you know, anyone else that uh, they have the opportunity to uh, collect that information from. One of the um, areas that comes through pretty consistently is that women tend to rate themselves lower than um, all others, like the aggregate of uh, all others' data. They also do um, more of a like a um, a poor job, or I'll say they struggle with being able to predict accurately 
how others really see and experience them. So women um, overall tend to underrate themselves in both of those categories. And uh, we work with them and really all leaders around this idea of having an accurate sense of self. Uh, One of our close colleagues, Scott Taylor, he's at Babson. Um, He has done a lot of his research and continues to do it in the space of self-awareness. And so um, Scott's work uh, dives into this um, area of women compared to men when it comes to predicting, you know, their own capability um, and how others view them. So we draw upon his work and those of uh, his colleagues uh, quite a bit and help really everyone or try to help everyone understand more accurately what self-awareness is and then how they can get a better sense of how they're coming across. So I'm interested, uh, Alan, because, you know, when women are making change, it's also that they can be facing situations where additional changes need to happen in the organization. There are not nearly as many female CEOs, for instance, as I might like, that you might like, that others would like to see. And you mentioned in your book that organizational change initiatives have a failure rate of about 60 to 70 percent, which is high, but makes sense to me. I'm curious why that failure rate is what it is and what you've seen, if anything, that helps improve those odds. So that that's a, a big question, which has a number of different, <laughs> yeah, has a number of different um, elements uh, connected to it. And so I can uh, speak to um, a couple, but but I'm sure it's uh, uh, just it'll just be the tip of the iceberg. So when what we know about um, women's development, and in particular uh, women's preparation for the C-suite and the CEO roles, as you pointed out, uh, there, there's a, uh, some research that really is pretty consistent around um, women uh, continue to progress at essentially the same rate as men until they get to be um, about eight to 10 years um, into the uh, their professional work experience. That age um, and kind of career Um, stage lines up with life career stages where folks might be or women might be in their 30s. And that's when a lot of women might be um, interested in having a family. And so family uh, commitments start to to really peak at the same time that really a a man or a woman's career might also be peaking. And if organizations are set up well to um, understand that, help the um, individual female kind of navigate those um, complexities and challenges, uh, they do that maybe through mentoring, through coaching, through support, uh, through conversation, you know, a lot of kind of planning out different projects and being very intentional about that career path, um, we do find that women have a greater chance of being able to be successful. Organizations that don't recognize that, that uh, don't take any additional steps, that kind of um, dismiss that reality are the ones where we see um, women exiting the workforce in higher numbers. And so that is definitely, you know, one of the things um, that um, our colleagues and their research um, find as well, and that really links up with, you know, a lot of what's out there. 
Okay, that certainly makes sense to me. I was going to ask this question later, but your answer makes me ask this now. You mentioned in the book people do indeed have these cycles, and they tend to last about five to nine years. Can you take us through what those various uh, cycles might be in someone's career, and if they have names to them or description, however you want to handle the question? Sure. They're definite cycles. So five to seven years is is the general time span of an average uh, life and career cycle. And what those are kind of periods of time where, um, generally speaking, we're kind of moving through uh, common life experiences. It doesn't take away from the uniqueness of each one of our journey, but it is to connect that with um, kind of what happens for a number of folks. So uh, there's a period of uh, childhood development that uh, takes us up actually through um, 18 for sure is one number, but then up to about 26. So there's um, a lot of research that I'm sure many of your you as well as your listeners would know that the, our brains are not fully developed um, until yep. we are about what, 25, 26. Um, that starts to overlap with um, a number of folks who move on to uh, secondary education. You know, um, you, you're you are pursuing usually college um, through early 20s and entering into the workforce in your early 20s in a professional role. So throughout your 20s, you're establishing yourself in your career um, and and you're becoming more mature, becoming more and more independent, right? So by the time that um, you are concluding your 20s, often you're ready to move into the next phase. And that's where um, we call it your working years. So it's not to suggest that we don't work before or after, but it is to suggest that work takes on um, a priority. And so your career and your career development for a lot of folks becomes pretty central. And so um, there's, you have a lot of energy for it. You have a lot of focus, a lot of motivation, a lot of ambition, and so on. Um, the next stage begins to bring in something you and I were just talking about when you asked me about uh, women and, and women in senior leadership roles, why we don't see more of them. Um, we begin to add um, other commitments to our life in the next stage. So once we're in our um, mid to late 30s, for a lot of folks, um, our kind of sphere of concern and influence um, has expanded. We might have partners, significant others. We might have spouses. uh, We might have children at that point. Uh, We might also be caring for um, older members of our family. This phase um, can overlap with the next one where where we are moving into kind of what's called kind of an integration stage. So um, in the in the prior phase, we are beginning families and um, really trying to um, manage different uh, areas of our life. And we then begin to master that, so to speak, and integrate those various identities into our life. That takes us through kind of our 40s. As we move into our 50s, we start to discern our future in a different way. For many people, uh, they their children may be out of the nest, so to speak, or becoming more independent. Maybe they're in their early 20s themselves um, or, um, you know, in their late teens, or maybe they're completely out on their own at that point. Um, so also people are looking at what it is that they might want to do for the next 10, 20, you know, 30 years of their life. And so then we move, we see folks moving into 
a point of, of reflection a kind of deeper reflection about the meaning of life and what it is that they want to do that has great purpose, you know, for their life. And so um, that's where I, I do a lot of work with um, individuals who are in their 50s. And as they start to look at, quote, retirement, as it often um, is thought of, they still have a lot of energy and a lot of interest to do a number of things professionally. And I hear quite a bit then I'd like to give back. And so this idea of kind of giving back more of a, of kind of tuning into kind of a greater purpose that we have for what it is we wish to do and why we wish to do it um, comes into focus. So those are some examples of the kind of classic uh, career and life stages. Um, and you know, for most of us, we follow that kind of general path, um, give or take, you know, two or three years. Sure. Well, I, I like that because one of the things that struck me about the book is, yes, there's leadership modeling, and I want to understand how I connect with my colleagues and all of that. But what really struck me about the book is how much it was also, you know, reaching out to achieve, but doing it in a way that also is touching and understanding my internal self, my values, my vision in a, in a really profound personal sense. So you mentioned in the book these personal vision statements. Uh, I guess it's DeWitt Jones model that you work off, at least in part. I'm curious if you can maybe talk to a couple of these kinds of vision statements or ways in which people have framed this different based on where they're at in the cycle. So that person who might be in their 30s versus their 50s, if you can give us any insights as to what you've, you've really been struck by or impressed by that you've seen in these vision statements. Oh, I'd love to. This is one area of my professional uh, work that really brings me great joy. So I've had a lot of experience and I'm having it currently because I teach MBA students, being able to work with individuals who are in their 20s all the way up through usually 60s, um, some even in their 70s. And right now I have an MBA class where a lot of those folks are anywhere from about 22 to maybe 32 and they have submitted their vision papers. And so, um, so your question really is very timely. At the same time, the folks that I'm coaching, I'm working with a, um, a couple individuals in the C-suite right now. And so I, I um, you know, I'm very familiar with their visions. Here's what I would say I, I notice, I observe in working with individuals. Um, most of the time, most of us have not had a lot of experience deeply reflecting on what we truly care about, as well as what we truly aspire to do in our lives and who we aspire to be. We have a lot more experience with the doing, so we get asked quite a bit, you know, what is it you want to do? And we get asked that question at a very, very young age. We ask little kids, well, what, would you, what do you want to do when you, you know, get to be bigger? And they dress up in, you know, fireman's costumes. Or my son used to, he wanted to be a garbage man. So he'd stand at the door when the garbage truck went by, right? So it's the imagination that we tap into in young children to help them imagine something that's exciting for them um, at their young age that they'd want to do later, we get asked that question, what do you want to do all the way through life? And when we're in our 30s, our 40s, we're at in a professional setting, we get asked by our managers, you know, or human resources yep. or yep. our friends, well, tell me what you want to do as if we would always have an answer. Uh, we do usually have an answer or feel like we have to have an answer, but a lot of times we don't really know. 
And so thinking about truly like imagining out in the future, what does life um, hold for us? What would we love for that to be is an exercise that often is novel for folks. The other piece that is um, unique and usually um, newer for folks is that other part of the question, like who is it you wish to be? And the being is about values, right? It's about like, who are you? Who, who do you wish to show up in your relationships in that board meeting, you know, working with you at the big client, you know, on a podcast or, or wherever. And so helping people to really discover it is um, an activity of kind of excavating, unearthing and discovering a deep down inside uh, what do you really feel is important for your own life and why? Uh, what do you see as your purpose for why you do what you do? And imagining out into the future, what would you really love to do and love to be? And being able to then uh, express that and articulate that in some kind of cohesive way. And that is what we call the vision. So the vision statement has a number of different kind of uh, aspects or legs to it. But if I could boil it down for folks, I would say it's about values, it's about purpose, and it's about passion. If you know individuals can reflect on those various areas and be able to come up with um, a way of expressing that, whether it's a written out notes or we do a lot of work around headlines, you know, like a headline statement, so to speak, um, or even an image. Well, I had a number of folks kind of uh, come up with pictures or images that describe their personal vision. So um, it can really provide a lot of meaning. It also, though, acts as a magnet. Uh, it draws us forward. Or I like to use the metaphor of like a North Star. You know, it really kind of illuminates the path for us, you know, on the way that um, you know, we can move ahead in life and be fulfilled and do our best work. Sure. No, I, I love all of that. The, the, the pictures, the, the, yeah, any way which you can push yourself forward uh, to find yourself. You talk about the real and ideal self. You say that there are gaps typically between those two. What, what kind of gaps are we talking about? What's, what are the patterns you've detected from this work now over the years? So the, the vision illuminates this uh, future point in time, right? And the path uh, forward. The real self is a snapshot of here and now. And so if you took a snapshot right now, kind of a, a selfie, so to speak, what yep. would we see in that picture? You know, what, where would you be? Who would you be with? Uh, what is it that you would be doing? And then we like double click on that and bring into that conversation uh, other feedback. So this is where we uh, work with individuals on the 360 degree feedback you and I were just talking about. So that kind of feedback from others, which helps them to uh, really diagnose what is it that I'm doing well, that's working well, and what kind of impact am I having? And then what's not working as well, or what doesn't come as easily for me? um, And what kind of impact is that having? And so that's where um, folks who like to dig into data love that part of the process, because we get really concrete. (laughs) The key, though, is most of the time, we focus on what we need to change or what's going, you know, not working well. 
And so we have too much of a disproportionate focus usually on all the things that we have to change and fix and shore up and improve. And that's absolutely part of it, but it's not the whole picture. So closing this gap between where we really wish to go and where we are now um, invites people to take a much more holistic view of things and to consider um, what their strengths are. So get anchored clearly in their strengths, what's, what's working well and what comes naturally. As, and then to consider what are those areas, a couple that they do need to shore up and how the strengths can support them. But we also bring into that conversation and that thinking, well, who else could help you? Because we don't really change or move towards our ideal self as a solo act. We are always surrounded by and working with others, uh, which can be another novel idea for some folks to wrap their head around of, oh, it's not just them, um, you know, kind of operating as a maverick, so to speak. But in reality, they're connected to a whole lot of other people professionally and personally. And so thinking about um, who's on their board of directors, you know, who's on their kind of support team can be a very useful exercise. So all that is in service of helping somebody to uh, gain clarity and map out kind of the specifics of what it is that they really want to embark on or to continue to learn, to grow, you know, to change that'll move them in the direction they seek. Sure. No, I, I love that. I use of personal board of directors in the book. Now you mentioned positive emotions and I, I remember at one point you have four of them, awe, joy, gratitude, and curiosity. Now awe and curiosity both play off surprise. Joy is, you know, the elated version of happiness but the other one that maybe caught me by a slight surprise was gratitude. Can you talk about the importance of gratitude as a positive emotion? So there is a lot of research that um, many folks um, are doing in the space of understanding gratitude and the role that it, it really plays in helping us to live a fulfilled life um, and to to really help us kind of broaden our sense of ourselves. So for us to be the very best that we can be, appreciating, appreciating ourselves and, and understanding the ways that we're having positive impact and then also spreading gratitude and appreciation to others is an essential way that we kind of connect in with one another as human beings. So we draw upon uh, Barbara Fredrickson's work as well as others um, in the positive psychology space. But uh, Barbara Fredrickson in her lab talks about 10 different words that are reported most often uh, when people describe positive emotion. And you mentioned several, um, joy at love, interest, serenity uh, would be others. Amusement, that's where humor, you know, and keeping things light and yep. lighthearted comes into play. Inspiration is in there. And then hope and gratitude. So gratitude is one of those um, 10 emotions that her research um, also kind of points us towards. So I like to uh, remind folks that um, being able to ignite positive emotion in ourselves and in others uh, doesn't take much time. It doesn't cost anything. It's really sure. about, you know, reflecting on one thing, two things regularly um, about ourselves, but also about others um, and what it is that really um, fills us with appreciation and then expressing that 
and being able to to then make that um, a regular practice can be one of the most um, important ways to keep ourselves healthy and whole, you know, and bring out, again, the best in us and the best in others. Sure. Well, the, the graduate struck me as very much being socially oriented because you're going to think about who's done things for you and, and it really has a connective element to it. So before we close here, I, I can't resist one last question to make it a bit more personal since we're talking about personal change. What's on your catch your dreams list? Where, where do you, Alan, still want to go in terms of moving from, you know, the real self to a, an ideal self or taking yourself to the next stage in your life, career, personal development? Oh, I, I love that. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to think about it. So here's one thing that's on my uh, my list. It's been on my list for a while, and that is to own a lake house. So I would love to be able to um, own um, a home where I could take my family uh, a couple times throughout the year, have kind of a, a respite um, spot, and uh, be able to entertain and have our extended family and friends. So um, I have to convince my husband that that is his dream, too, though. So I'm working on it. <laughs> it's, it's a process. It's a work in progress right now. <laughs> uh, but that well, would be we, fantastic. We, we, well, we, we know the Dutch are famously frugal, so you might have a bit of a challenge there. That's right. Uh, but, but, I wish you, but I wish you well with it. So, uh, Alan, I want to thank you so much. Our, our time is up. This has been uh, Alan Van Oosten, who has been my guest on episode number 31 called Inspiring Sticky Change. She is the co-author of Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion for Lifelong Learning and Growth. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, uh, please visit my company's website at the three W's, sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Alan, you can email it to me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed today's episode, certainly give it a five-star rating or review online if you'd like. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. We've been talking about change and learning and growth today. So uh, I can't resist this quote from the French philosopher Henry Bergenson, who wrote, to exist is to change, to change is to mature, to mature is to go on creating oneself endlessly. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm -hmm.